I'm only here for comedic purposes. Welcome to the Pain Points Podcast. I'm here with Caleb. Hey. Michael. Hi. And myself, Ben. And we have some follow-up. So last last week I talked I talked about the throughput of human information, and I'm not sure I explained very well what we can communicate in an hour takes like Ethernet or USB like half a second. <laughs> we are inherently limited in the amount of information we can output. I just want to make that clear. Um, even when computers are tied to our neurons. Also, I made a reference to the aesthetics of Snow Crash and Neuromancer. Snow Crash is a much more gaudy book than Neuromancer overall, but the parts of the story that take place in the physical world are much more subdued aesthetically, even though the storyline is way crazier. Also, we talked a lot about games, um, a lot of game critiques, those who can do and those who cannot teach or critique and me and Caleb are not game critics, <laughs> are not are not game devs. Me and Caleb are not game devs in the slightest. We we really don't know how to do these things. And one side note: Dark Souls uses a whole bunch of cinematics. There there's a whole bunch of show in Dark Souls, but there is a lot more tell. I just wanted to establish that. And that's it for my follow up. I got I got a couple bits too. I had. Uh jokingly mentioned last week that I could see no way that it'd be more expensive to build a train line out to the Denver airport uh, instead of doing construction on 183. I went and found the numbers. I'm wrong. The Denver train line project cost $1.1 billion, which is some government problems of just funding and et cetera, et cetera. The 183 construction so far, what they planned for it was $743 million, you know, 25, 30% less. That might jump up to a billion by the time it's done but a we should still have a train line out there though because it also says it's supposed to be done by early 2019 on the project site and if you've driven down 183 anytime recently uh well there's still whole bridges just that they've decided nah, we haven't gotten to this yet so yeah that, that might jump up a lot uh the other thing that i wanted to mention was I, I didn't give an exact number of how bad the light rail line is but the last train mondays through thursdays leaves down the downtown station at 6:43 p.m. on a Thursday evening. The last train north is at 6:43 p.m. You can't even go down, grab dinner, and head back. Nope, you don't have the option. I'd classify Thursday as like a night of like, hey, I want to go out and get grab dinner or something. You could say Thursday's good for that. So I just wanted to throw that number out there. So when we said it stops early, 6:43 early. And I have no follow-ups because all of my arguments are perfect and I'm never wrong even though I am wrong all the time and none of my arguments are that good. That's why I had follow-up for you. The floor is yours, Michael. My, my pain point for the week is that NFC payments, specifically on my end, Apple Pay, but Google Pay counts too. I need anything you use for NFC payments or contactless payment is not prevalent in the United States of America. We're lucky we live in a little city called Austin in a bigger state called Texas, but we're a little tech hub. And so we actually do have NFC payments. We have Apple Pay available at most of the stores around here. I'll go dig up a metric next week. Other smaller places don't have it at all. But I was recently in the United Kingdom, specifically London, but also all of Scotland. And not just like more places have Apple Pay available. Every single place has Apple Pay down to like taco trucks except they don't sell tacos in scotland they're fish and chip trucks so you can just use apple pay anywhere and this opens up so much 
capability. Because right now in Austin, we're in a state where you have to bring your wallet with you. you. I mean, if they have Apple Pay and you walk up there, it's like, oh, I can use it. But that's not guaranteed to any place you walk into unless you know the place. Whereas over there, if I'm walking around, I can leave my wallet at home, which is great because I don't really want to carry my wallet at this point because it just has a card in it. And a driver's license. If I'm just walking around, I don't need the driver's license for anything. I just have an Apple Watch. Everyone basically has a iPhone or an Android device that can pay for things at this point. It's much nicer just to walk out the door with these devices and know like any place I go, a food truck, a coffee shop, the metro, I can just walk on and pay for with my contactless technology device. And like I said, in the UK, even though trains, you don't have to go buy a ticket or anything. You just double tap the button on your in your watch, NFC payment, walk on. NFC to get off, just walk off. And then it charges you for it. It's easy. Everybody, even the restaurants, like they have these little uh, terminals and they just walk up to the table, type in how much you owe, scan it, done. Was here in America, they take your card away to some unknown location for five minutes and then come back with it. It'd be much nicer if I could just pay with the device. And it's not just for like convenience's sake. Like I said, I don't want to bring my wallet places, but you have to. It's also security. Like the NFC payment device, at least on the uh, Apple side of things, is much more secure than just using your card. Cards at gas stations get skimmed all the time. This uses a secure chip to like mask your actual card number and it gives you a device number, which is a prepaid card. And that's what the that's what the terminal sees at the stores. They see your device number, which is a card with no money on it until you grant it the access to give it the $10 that you're going to do for spending. It's, it's safer. It's more convenient. It's faster. Over in the UK, you just walk up to a terminal. They don't ask like, oh, you're going to be paying by cash or by card or by check, I guess. It's a weird thing that people do. They just know. It's like, hey, they're probably going to either use the contactless credit cards or the Apple Pay. What you walk up, do it, scan it, done, walk away. You can check out in like 10 seconds. And because everybody's doing it, you don't have long lines because somebody's waiting behind someone writing out a check for two minutes. No, they've already paid. So it's faster than a check. It's faster than your chip machines that we have where you put the chip in and wait for 10 seconds. And then it goes beep, beep, beep. And then you take the chip out and everyone's like, okay, he's done paying now. So it's all sorts of better it's easier, it's always with you, it's more secure, and yet we are so, be- we're not even close. Well, I say we're close on like coffee shop payments because like half the coffee shops can accept it, Starbucks can accept it. So I'm like, hey, we're getting there. But then I have not walked into a single restaurant in the history of the United States that has the little mobile payment thing that they have in every restaurant in the UK, every restaurant in Canada where they just bring it out, type in the number that you pay, and they can swipe the card or do the contactless pay down, print the little receipt, and it's just handheld. They have not seen one in this entire country. And so I don't, I don't know where we are adapting everything to be contactless yet, but I would like to get there because it's just better in basically every way over just your old-fashioned plastic credit card. So that's my little pain point because I would just love everything to be Apple Pay enabled. Because it would be fantastic. So one of the first things that I thought of was, this is going to sound like a sidestep to start off with, but in the US versus the EU, there's a huge difference in land use. So in the US, we have a whole bunch of rural communities. Like We have states with tiny, tiny populations. Compared to the US, a lot of the EU is urban sprawl. Yes. 
when you have rural populations versus urban populations, urban populations tend to accept new technologies quicker than rural populations, just because urban populations tend to, on average, be richer than um, rural populations. So that cost of business of adopting NFC, like it's easier to bite the bullet in urban centers versus rural centers. So like that, that cost of that cost of adapting that is lessened. However, we are really bad. Like our urban centers are not good at adopting all of this stuff. Um, like even in Austin, even in Austin, we still have a whole bunch of places that don't use NFC. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I mean, a counter argument to that would be rural Scotland is just sheep, and they <laughs> have food trucks that have it. Canada is. I would not call Canada urban sprawl. I would call Canada just as rural as we are. Oh, probably more so percentage wise. I would think. Like they've got a lot of empty space, and like you were saying, Austin. I, I, like I said, I haven't seen a restaurant that has the little mobile things. I would expect in Austin, the new restaurants at the Domain, they should be having handheld pavement things. These are brand new restaurants in the richest part of this town. How they don't have this yet is, I'm not sure. I'm not asking for the people of Montana to have Apple Pay yet, but I would like to see more advancements in the city that we live in and you know other big urban cities in the United States. Definitely when, like I said, Royal Canada and Scotland seem to have this figured out. I don't know. All right, Caleb, you got anything? Nope. <laughs> Cal- Cal- Caleb's fun. Yeah. I I don't have any any counters. You you may have something for this one. Something I've had to think about due to my position and what I've been a part of for my job is entry to buildings. The campus I work on. We have the best entry solution that we possibly could, but it's still very, very clumsy. So a couple of the different methods of entry that I've used for my own housing slash apartment or whatever, and what I've used at work, we've got key fobs, which are those really ugly, horrible, like egg-shaped things to stick on a key ring that I hate. Possibly my least favorite way to like enter into a building. You've got key cards that you can st- stick in your wallet, which I love. Uh, you have physical keys, which are just nice. They give like the little jingly. They just look pretty. They just have like a nice shine that humans tend to enjoy. And it's something that's been ingrained into human society for a long, long time. You've got the like the three-prong keys, the old cast iron keys or whatever for chests and trunks and things like that. But now we've moved a little farther on where you can do location-based tracking, where for my phone... When I would show up to my apartment for a while, I would have, when I got within like 500 feet of my house, all of my lights would come up and then I could open the door and come in we used IFTTT. What, what I'm trying to get at is my car's in the shop and I hate it so much. I had to pick up a rental. Um, they give you this horrible... These Are those keys? Old. I have I have this metal dangly thing that comes off of my key fob that I Ooh, hate. What is that? Do you what do you put that? What do you put that? I I've been spoiled. I've had a push to start car since 2009. So I'm not used to like having to get into car and jam this metal thing into like my huge honking like sardine can that I hurl myself down the street with. <laughs> and then you have to like tone it for a specified number of <laughs> I hate it seconds. And then oh I hate it so much. Yeah. So I've got this ugly key that I have to jam into my car and turn on. Well, my normal method of carrying all of my access entries is I have my apartment key fob on my personal keychain. So my personal keychain has my 
car, house, mailbox key, um, golf cart shed key, or when I go to my parents' place to play golf, all of those are on one keychain. On my next keychain, I have my work keys. And so I have this distinction so I can keep my work keys in my car. I never have to take them into my home. So when I show up to work, I always have them. They are always there. My car is always at work with me. So I also keep them separate so that at work, I can only have my work keys and I can hang up my car keys and my personal keys on a little hanger I keep by my desk. So I never have to have, what is this? 10, and I never have to have 20 keys in my pocket at the same time. It's terrible. It looks like I have a growth on my leg. It's just a bad scene. What this allows me to do is it allows me to have, I only have to have one at a time at almost all times. So when I'm at work, I have my work keys. When I am leaving work, I have my car keys. It's great. I don't have baggy, huge pockets. It's more comfortable. I don't have to worry about getting keys jammed into my leg. We I also have a couple of excess card keys that I keep in my wallet. It's just super easy. They're always somewhere semi-accessible. Fit in the credit card slot of my wallet. Almost never get it mixed up with the with the fob for my apartment to get into the garage and to get into the to get actually get into my apartment. However, I have tried to swipe into my apartment with my wallet key card. What started me on this tangent of there's got to be a better way, there's got to be a way to consolidate all of this is my fob to get into my parking garage is on my personal keychain. My personal keychain is usually push to start, which means that I can have it in the cup holder and I can take it out and pass it around. Well, today I have this ugly, ugly thing that I have to jam into my car and keep there and like turn, make sure it's on and stuff. Well, I pull up to my parking garage, gate's closed. I ha I sit there, I forgot the code to get into the parking garage. So I have to put my car in park, reverse turn the keys, pull the metal thing out of my car, swipe my fob, stick my keys back in to my car, turn it back on and then drive away. I had three people behind me by the time I was done. Granted, granted, I could have done it a little more gracefully and quickly. However, that's not who I am as a person. <laughs> so, I, Nobody's graceful in times of no, panic. I wasn't panicking. I was just frustrated and angry that I had this ugly metal thing that had to jam into my car, turn, and like just not to mention that just driving home in this thing is I, I went from a nice, beautiful, sleek Subaru BRZ to a Nissan Versa that drives like a boat and gets blown around by the wind. And ugh, ugh. Well, if we had good public transportation downtown, you could probably take the public transportation. If only, if only. <laughs> so I, I had this that entire that entire scene of just me sweating and frustration, just angrily, is like I've got like three people that I see almost like once a week. What I want, what I want is I want a way to where I can have all of these fobs in one. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's this ugly gray wart that I have to carry around on my personal keychain. I don't care if it's like a key card. I want to be able to consolidate all of those things. If anyone who hears this can let me know <laughs> if there's a way to consolidate key fobs, I will be eternally grateful. So I don't think you can yourself do key fobs like that, but they are getting ways for NFC of all things to kind of do that. Cause like there are certain hotel apps that let you use your iPhone or your Android, you know, whatever, if you have the app, it's like, you can use that as your room key basically. And so I think as hopefully as more and more things are like, Hey, we can build it into the, your device. You can start using your device for, to be more of a fob type thing for more things. Man, if they could add, if they could add my key fobs to my Apple wallet. Oh, exactly. I'd like that would cut down. I would almost not have to carry any 
thing on me besides like physical keys and my car keys just because all of like all of the fobs that i carry all the key cards that i carry like i could get rid of my wallet i could just get rid of my wallet except for my driver's license which you could keep in your car that's similar to what i'm proposed like as i use the watch more i i'm more interested as in the watch being the hub for everything that i do because the nice thing with the watch is like the moment you take it off it's like i'm not the watch anymore i'm just nothing so like no one can steal it and type in a passcode or do it you know nothing like that like the moment you take it off it's can't be the fob but as you're wearing it all the time it could be the fob in your wallet and just all these things kind of meshed into one that you always have with you. I love technology. I really hope that we can consolidate all these horrible things that I that drive me up just like up the wall. If we could get rid of them, that would be... By 2030. I think that's all. You got anything, Caleb? The, the point I, I wanted to make is, especially about cars, uh, I know that... A lot of cars will have certain patents on, on, on their key or their fob. Like Ford right now has the patent for the key code that you like type into your in your car to open the door. Because I, I always have that annoyance when I'm like going to the gym and I have to like take my key out and everything. And I have a Chevy. Like I, I take everything off my key. I just have you know the metal thing that I jam into the car. When I, I go to the gym, I have to carry around the key. It's kind of a little bit annoying because I always have to worry about it. But then when I get back to my car, now... If I unlock it, I like I have to put the key in and I turn it and it opens up. Every time I do that, the security system goes off, which is really annoying. And so like for five seconds, I've got I'm the most annoying guy in the parking lot. Like, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. Like I have to get on. I have to turn my car. Like, I have to put the key in and then turn it to disable the security system so that it knows it's me. So I would love to have something where it's like, hey, I can I can unlock my car with my phone. I think they have that with like OnStar, but you have to pay a fair amount and I don't think it's really worth it on that aspect. It would be kind of cool to have an app where I could connect that to my car or even my house and, and be able to unlock these locks with an app or a watch or whatever is there. But I don't know if the patent is maybe taken by people or if on a car they're already working on establishing something like that. So I actually found something while you were talking. There's the Keezy RFID duplicator, which seems like a horrible, horrible idea. Besides the fact that RFID is just really fraught with security flaws to begin with. But I think I think that NFC might actually, depending on how secure NFC is, it might actually be a good way to consolidate all of those fobs. And it just makes me sad that we haven't figured this seemingly simple problem out that we can't get on a standardized sol- like solution for key fobs. I mean, with technology, you know the whole standardization. It's like, oh, we need a new standard. And then 20 people make new standards. It's like, well, you should use our standard. Our standard is the best standard. We need, we need one open source operating system that computers can run on. We just need one. And then you get Red Hat, Santos, um, <laughs> Debian. <laughs> Remember, uh, App- Apple tried to push FileWire for years. Like, well, this is better than USB in like every way and faster. And they even the first iPod pod had a FileWire port in the very top of it. And then everyone was like, no, we're just going to continue using USB. Thank you. I mean, you. USB-C is nice, but. Yeah, it, t- it only took 20 years to get to that. <laughs> and people are still complaining when people switched don't have USB or only have USB or C or... Slowly but surely. No, no one's ever going to be happy. All right, I think I've beaten that dead horse. All right, Caleb. Okay. We've prepared ourselves. We're Ooh. buckled up. 
You have the floor. Okay, so this week, my pain point is on the NFL overtime rules. Right now in the NFL, the, the overtime rules dictate a 10-minute period after the standard regulation where both teams are in a tie or have the same score or whatever in the regulation play. Afterwards, there's a three-minute intermission period, and then they flip a coin to decide who is going to receive the ball and who's going to be kicking off. Um, If at the end of overtime both teams are tied, then the game ends with a tie and that's it. But where it gets a little bit weirder is if the team who gets the ball first or receives the ball first on the initial drive scores a touchdown, then the game is over. There's no rebuttal from the other team's offense. The game is just done. If the initial drive ends up with a field goal, then the second team gets an opportunity to score. If they score a touchdown, the game's over. If they score a field goal, then they just keep going back and forth until somebody scores points and the first person to score points wins and the game is over. If the initial drive team uh, fails to score and then the next team scores, then the game's over and that's that. Can I, there was was another bit in there. If the first team scores a field goal and then the next team doesn't score on their drive, the field goal only ends the game if the next team doesn't score. So it's a weird, it's a weird, like, it's a game's just over with, on an interception thing. Uh, they actually had to constantly explain this because people kept forgetting the rules or not being able to fully understand it. But prior to 2010, this actually wasn't the case. The, the rules we just stated weren't there. What it was is whoever scored first, that was it. That was the end of the game. So an offense could just go up, get to the 40-yard line, kick a long field goal, and then the game is over. There's no rebuttal. There's no chance for redemption. That rule was changed for the 2012 season. They actually experimented with it in the 2011 to 2012 season. Before that change to to what they have now, uh, approximately 60% of teams who received the ball first won the game. And that's why they changed it because there was a pretty big apparent like you're just if you win a coin toss, that's it. You you win the game pretty much. It's a 20 percent swing. Like it's just kind of insane. Uh, there's only real two instances in which the team who won the coin toss were like, yeah, we're going to go for field position. And both of those are actually Bill Belichick. One of them was in a really awful weather game. So it was better to have field position. And they actually won that game. The other was against the Jets, who, for no apparent reason, he decided to get field position. Then the Jets got it on the initial drive, scored a touchdown, and then that was that. But since changing the rule, there have been 110 games that have been played that went into overtime. Seven of those games have resulted in a tie. 55 of those games uh, were won by the team that received the ball first, which is still a 53% win rate compared to 48 of those games were won by the team that kicked off, or 46%. So it's still a 7% difference. And the general strategy is just win this coin toss, and you can still pretty much win the game. You have a huge advantage over the other team to win that has no skill involved. So this season alone, we've had 10 games that went into overtime. Compared to 2017, we had 13 games that whole season, including playoffs. Four of them this season have been Browns games. And if we keep on pace to where we're going right now in the regular season, we would have 20 overtime games. With the current rules and how they are, this could actually decide a huge number of games based on a coin toss. So five of the games out of the 10 this season that have been played in overtime were won by the receiving team. 
Three of them were won by the kicking team, and two of them resulted in a tie. Which, side note, games resulting in a tie after like 1970. Before 1970, there were quite a few number of ties in the NFL. Now, they're very rare. And to have two in a single season that happened back-to-back in two weeks was just out of this world. Weeks Weeks one one and two. two. And now, (laughs) with those two games... It was the first one was the Cleveland Browns versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. And in that game, their kicker missed the game winning field goal. They also received the ball first. The the next team was the Minnesota Vikings versus the Green Bay Packers. Minnesota also received the ball first and also their kicker missed the game winning field goal. So if we count both of those, that means seven of the games this season that went into overtime would have been won by the receiving team or 70%. And if you extrapolate that with a projection, that could be 14 games that are literally decided by, did you call heads or tails right? <laughs> Which is just crazy to me. Like that could change the whole outcome of the playoffs. That could change your whole standings in it just because of coin toss. We actually saw this in implementation with Super Bowl 51 and the New England Patriots versus the Atlanta Falcons, where it's the classic meme of the Falcons blew a 28-3 lead. And at halftime, you know, the Patriots came back, they tied up the game. And then after regulation time, they went into overtime, the Patriots won the coin toss. And on the initial drive, they threw a touchdown and they won Super Bowl 51. That's crazy because the Super Bowl was pretty much decided by a coin toss. Atlanta didn't get a chance to, to rebuttal. And Atlanta had a hugely good offense. Like they were super good. And they they didn't have a chance to to show that. Even this season, they went into overtime with the New Orleans Saints, and the same thing happened to them. The New Orleans Saints got the ball in the initial drive. They went down. They scored a touchdown. That was it. Game over. And they're they're pretty hurting at defense this season. But it it's just crazy that you're judging teams in overtime based on only fifty percent of the team. You know, it's either, okay, your defense goes out there and you do well or your offense goes out there. It's not all sides of the game. And when you look at other sports, that's not the case. In baseball, you when you go into extra innings, both teams get a chance, both their offense and their defense. When you look at basketball, it's the same thing. You have an overtime period and you have to go out there, you have to play offense and defense. So it doesn't make sense why in the NFL, we're only testing half your team. And when you look at it too... Offenses and defenses are pretty isolated, and I don't just mean they play different positions. If you look at uh, kickoff returns and field position, kickoff return placement doesn't have a huge weight on scoring ability for an offense. So about 76% of kickoff returns end up somewhere between the 20 and the 30-yard line. When you look at the average points possession differential of that kickoff placement, if you start between the 20 and the 30 you're at about, on average, half a point below of if you started between the 40 and the 50-yard line. And even less amount of those kickoffs would like result in a touchdown or anything. I think it's less than 5%. So that means your offense is pretty isolated from your special teams and that when your offense is actually out there... So kickoff placement doesn't really have any standing on that. And the reason I bring up that point is just to reiterate that like when your offense is out there, it's your offense. If it's a good offense, they're going to score. If it's a bad offense, they probably won't score. So if you put a good off, if you have two really strong offensive teams playing, maybe they have a weaker defense and the first one gets a shot to go down there and prove their worth. Why shouldn't the second one? 
it's basically inherently unfair to not allow the other offense to get a chance at either continuing the game or at least getting a shot at winning if starting field position doesn't play a major factor in scoring. It's, it's literally up to your offense. And then the next thing is broadcasting restrictions for NFL overtime. And this is, uh, this is a little bit insane. So if a game does go into overtime and conflicts with what they deem as the national game, which is typically shown at like 3.30, on either Fox or CBS, depending. The station can cut off overtime coverage short, even if a play is still happening. So this happened this season, actually, when I was watching the Week 6 showdown of the Bears versus the Dolphins. And that game got cut with two minutes left in overtime to show the Jags-Cowboys game. And it was right when, I think, the Bears were about to kick a field goal that they ended up missing, but I missed that entire thing. So a point to that, they can continue to show an overtime game unless you are in the team's broadcast area. The reason we got kicked out is because we are the we are in the Cowboys zone and thus they are required to show the entire Cowboys game. If you were in, say, Los Angeles for this, they would not have to cut over to the Jags Cowboys. They can join that a quarter in. Like they'll allow they to can, do that. depending. Um if you're in the direct market or whatever they kind of deem as the secondary market, then yes. They actually shortened the length of overtime because I think this was such a problem. Overtime used to be 15 minutes, but in 2017, the league voted to decrease that time to 10 minutes. I think that that does deal with the broadcasting issues. And it's just super, oh God, is it annoying. Especially if you're watching a full game that's being shown. I mean, I'm, I'm watching this Bears-Dolphins game from the very beginning. I want to see how it ends. And then with two minutes left in the entire play, you're just like, sorry, we're going to this other game. The, the pre-show of that game, like it wasn't even kickoff yet. It was still like a couple minutes till kickoff. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, show me that game. I don't want to watch this. I want to go back to the exciting part of that game. And then the Dolphins ended up coming back and actually beating the Bears, which is crazy. And I didn't get to see the missed field goal. And I feel like I missed out on that. Back to kind of the point about seeing how playoffs are enacted in other sports in other sports like basketball, baseball, those overtime rules pretty much extend throughout all levels of play from high school to college to uh, professional. When you look at like baseball and basketball, the NHL, not so much. Um, they can actually have ties. When you look at football at the professional level, the overtime rules are completely different from that at the high school and the college level. In the high school and the college level, they have what's known as the Kansas plan. And in the Kansas plan, each team gets a possession of the ball at the opponent's 25-yard line. Regardless of the first possession score, the other team gets a shot at scoring. Uh, and they go back and forth. They do this, you know, one back and forth is considered one overtime. After two overtimes, if you score a touchdown, you're required to go for the two-point conversion. The only way to win without both teams uh, getting a possession is if you result in a defensive score or you do a pick six or something like that. But overtime games played this way are actually a lot shorter than in the NFL overtimes. And both aspects of a team are actually tested. It just doesn't match up when you look at the NFL's overtime rules because it's you're testing all aspects of a team during regulation play and then in overtime all of a sudden it's only half it, it creates just a much more equal matchup in overtime to do the kansas plan plus networks wouldn't have to worry about shutting off games and the league wouldn't have to worry about making fans angry and i think people would be a lot happier the only people that probably wouldn't be as happy are scorigami people because this would also ensure that no game ever finishes in a tie like there has to be a winner 
So, I mean, I think the solution to this is either the NFL allows allows opposing teams a, a chance to score, you know, to at least get a retribution. You know, it like if your offense is good and you go down and you score a touchdown, the other team should also have that chance. You should then have to rely on your defense to do it just like normal gameplay. That way it's fair, it's equal. You don't have any of this unfair advantage that's decided by a coin toss. It's actually skill that's out there. And you don't run into the broadcasting issues. So I think it's just a much better system overall. One of the things that I think the NFL needs to work on is how exciting the games are. I may be the only one of us that, that that thinks that the NFL games are like essentially boring. There's like, there's two to three minutes of action in each game total. You'll have several plays that are exciting and then the rest are very, I'm trying to think of, uh, for lack of a better word, they're very, they're very by the book. Like you try and get four to five yards. And I think that overtime is kind of, suffered from that mentality of never mind i lost my train of thought <laughs> uh the video that uh caleb got one of these numbers off of the uh, the kickoff video was actually a very interesting video there's a couple good chop party videos that i've watched before that this being one of them which where he basically states the kickoff is useless the kickoff is the dumbest thing ever and when you as you go along with it yeah it is and that's one of the things that like kills the flow of a football game is somebody you score and then you wait around then you kick a little extra point and then you wait around for a commotion then you have this kickoff which is a meaningless play and then you have another commotion or it's slow so you have these long periods of downtime over the scoring where nothing happens because the kickoff is the most boring play in football and it's surrounded by two commercial breaks a one, but still, it's it's a slow downtime. The actual like five yard when the they're actually moving the ball, the little five yard runs. I don't find those boring at all. As long as the drive is moving downfield, I'm content. It's those long gaps every time somebody scores that you know do make it a little bit more boring or hurt the flow of the game. I think we're gonna have different. We're gonna have a dis- disagreement here over what kind of styles of football we like to watch. I, I think that the kickoff actually adds a decent amount of drama to the game unless it's a touchback. But most of them are touchbacks. Which is why 76% of kickoff returns end up between the 20 and the 30-yard line. And that's really also because they moved and changed the touchback rule from starting at your 20-yard line to your 25-yard line. Brought up a point. Well, the exciting part of a kickoff was always like it runs back for a touchdown. But those never happen. Like, they happen very rarely or about five percent of the time yeah because you want you want to kick it through like it's really boring to watch a kicker just dome it through the end zone like those kickoffs are awful but when the player can actually return the ball that's when there's i, I think that's when there's a lot of interesting playing on. it's so rare that it's not worth the time investment to make that an interesting play punt returns are way more exciting than a kickoff return yeah at this point i i agree and if you could just abolish it, you would save enough time that you'd actually get back onto playing and shorten the games up a bit and also save Caleb his broadcasting rules problem because the game just shortened up a bit. I mean, I will say I'm going to put part of the blame on that on the actual networks in the league because I, I've kind of felt it this season where I feel like there's just a lot more commercial breaks happening. I mean, even when this season we went to see the A&M Arkansas game in Jerry World... And they had, I don't know how many official timeouts where it was three minutes of us just sitting there in the stands like, 
okay, I guess they're on commercial break. They just put so many of those in there. I was watching an ESPN game a couple weeks ago. There were so many commercial breaks. Like I started to notice it more, and it, it I might have just been a more boring game. I think it was actually the New England Kansas City game, and I felt like there was more commercials. But if if you're trying to put in so many commercials, and I mean overtime is kind of a rare occurrence. I mean, like I said, uh, this season's kind of weird because we've already had ten last season, including postseason, only had thirteen games that went into overtime. I do think the Kansas plan is just an easy solution to this. Like you don't have to worry about it. And broadcasters, owners, the league, they shouldn't have to worry about that either if they adopted the Kansas plan because your overtime is going to be a lot shorter. You're testing all aspects of the field, so you're not going to get any gripe from the Players Association, from the fans that feel wronged by this system. And you're not going to have to worry about games spilling over into the next game unless they go into eight overtime periods. I think it's maybe happened once or twice in college, and I think it was Arkansas too because they just know how to go into overtime. They just love overtime. Yeah, they just love overtime. But I think there's an easy solution there, and it just it kind of boggles my mind that when you give them the data and they look at the statistics and and listen to the players, it's like, yeah, no, we're not going to fix it. As far as it goes to NFL overtimes, I, I really do. Is it the Kansas or the Kentucky rules? It's the Kansas plan. The Kansas, I really like the Kansas plan. Like in college, in college, it, they, you are actually scared that they will score on any play because the field is has been shortened so much. It's also much more exciting in in my mind because you do get some of these overtime games that are just like punt, 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 and they just like kick it back and forth, and then then the you're just watching soccer. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty much just watching soccer at that point. And you're like, man, that's a really good punter. Like, if you're noticing how good a punter is, shout out Aggie football, <laughs> then like maybe you need to be like, ah. Kasich for Heisman. This is that entertaining. Like, nothing against punters, but I I, I just think it works a, a lot better. Um, and you also really do end up testing, like, your actual offense and your defense. And it may be, you know, for the NFL, you start back a little bit farther. Maybe you start at the 35 instead of the 25. I mean, that does give you the opportunity for three chances at a first down versus two. But it's it's where it is. And it, you let both sides of the team play, and you get them to actually test their metal, not just put them out there and give an unfair advantage to the guy who called heads. Yeah, and in the interest of going off on random tangents, they should probably figure out the CTE uh, problem first before they try and figure out figure out the playoff problem. Actually, in the show notes, there will be the link to the chart party thing. There's actually a really good, interesting thing about the the kickoff and and how it compares to player health and the possible solution that's there. Uh, I don't think. It, I don't think it'll be implemented uh, anytime soon at all, if ever. But it, it's kind of interesting. It's just like a thought experiment and, and kind of where the league is and um, possible changes to the game that could I'll come see, in the I, future. We'll see the college rule or the Kansas plan get implemented before we see that beautiful uh, fourth and 10 for a kickoff idea show up. <laughs> uh, fourth and Fourth and 20. I love that. Yeah, fourth and 20. That way you I love, I love that. I would love to see that. Wait, what is it? Explain this rule to me. In a kickoff return, uh, it is considered the most dangerous play in football because as someone kicks off, 
both teams are already running full speed ahead of each other before the play could be considered dead, either through a touchback or by the guy kneeling or calling a fair catch, whatever. And so people are just running into each other at full speed. So people get injured. Well, there was a play, I think in college where it happened to a guy. He basically is now a, I don't know if he's a quadriplegic, but he, he got hit so hard that he can't walk anymore. Um, so they proposed a safer alternative, which is basically just a punt return because punt returns are much safer because you start from a starting position. You can't get as much momentum build up and you know, if the play is dead before you're hitting guys or you're really going in at full force. So it's a lot safer for the players. So you start after each score possession at, I think the 30, wherever you do the, the kickoff now, I think it's on the 35, 25 and you, uh, you give the team a fourth and 20. So that way they can just kick the ball, but it also eliminates the idea of onside kicks because that's the biggest argument against it is if you like the onside kick still keeps a two minute game alive, that would otherwise be completely dead. Uh, but onside kicks, I think only work about 5% of the time. It's a very small percentage that people can actually get it. So this actually increases those chances and you could increase it up to like 15%. So now when you score, the final two minutes are still really interesting because they can just go for it on fourth and 20 and then get the ball back. Interesting. Okay. I've never heard of that before. The Chart Party video is a very good video. You should all watch it. If you haven't seen the Chart Party series, uh, the Scorigami the score one was also fun. Scorigami is really fun, which that is the sad thing. If the Kansas plan does get enacted, RIP in peace, Scorigami. I mean, just the tie, just the tie ones. You can have that fifty-two to fifty-six game happen. We'll never get to see a four and four game. Okay, the thing that makes me irrationally angry that really shouldn't or has no weight on me as a person is pre-cut fruit. I absolutely hate it. I think it is just the worst possible things like there are some i understand like maybe you're like oh pineapple P- pineapple isn't even that hard to cut though like it's just like okay gone on all the sides they even have that little machine thing that you can do to get the pineapple where i have the real problem is when you see like an orange and they peel the orange and then they put like four plastic containers around it and then they're just like here it's gonna be six dollars for this one orange and you're like are you kidding me the fruit already comes with a pre-wrap and it's like 50 cents an orange like i'm gonna take that deal like I, it's just absolutely insane to me. Or then when you see like the mixed berries thing, where it's like oh, we have some blueberries and some blackberries and some cut up strawberries. That's right there, and it's ten dollars for this tiny little like jar of it. When you can buy all three of those things separately for less than fifty percent of the price, and it's just absolutely insane that that is even a thing. And it just makes me so mad. I would walk through a grocery store, I would see it, and I would just have to stop and be like, take a deep breath, don't let this affect you, and then I'd walk walk past it i just i hate pre-cut fruit i hate it i hate it so much just buy the fruit it's way cheaper like maybe watermelon watermelon that's the one i can understand because like sometimes i don't want to eat a whole watermelon i don't want to throw all this watermelon out so now i get a small amount of watermelon and that's completely fine but like apple slices come on just buy the apple it's not that hard don't buy the pre-peeled orange like just buy the orange that's it and then I won't be so mad. And it's just so expensive. And the workers who cut the fruit, they don't even make enough to buy the fruit. It's just, ugh. 